you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn in them to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. So far together, we have examined Lord's Day 1. Lord's Day 1 of this catechism. And Lord's Day 1 functions in some sense as an outline for the rest of the document. In question and answer one, we learned that our only comfort in life and in death is found in belonging to Jesus Christ. This signals to us that this whole document, this whole catechism, is a catechism about comfort. But then question and answer two is a more formal outline of this document. It, it asks, well, how, what things do we need to know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? It gives us three things. You can think of these three things as either guilt, grace, gratitude, or sin, salvation, service. And that is a formal outline for the rest of, of this catechism. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that you can really relabel these as law, gospel, law. The law comes to convict us of our sin and misery, to drive us to Christ and the gospel. Once we are in Christ, we are then freed up to obey the law out of gratitude. So today we are entering into the guilt or sin section of this catechism. So Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Please pay careful attention for this is God's word. Paul says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. May he write this word upon our hearts. If you now turn in your order of worship to our Heidelberg Catechism, which is printed for you, we'll be confessing together Lord's Day 2, Question answers three through five. Lord, say two, question answers three through five. I will read the question. If you please respond by reciting the answer. Question three asks, how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary. In Matthew 22, 7 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Well, the problem of evil has been an age-old problem for Christians, meaning 
how can a good and sovereign God be both in control of all things, but yet permit and allow suffering and evil to occur in his creation? And this is a difficult question that, that we indeed should, should wrestle with. However, the fact that Christians and non-Christians alike can come to at least a relative level of agreement on that which is evil, murder, slander, theft, and a relative level of agreement on that which is good, that which is virtuous, presupposes that there's an objective moral standard that has been written upon the hearts of, of all human beings. So yes, the problem of evil is difficult, but the problem of the good is also difficult. That is to say, the problem of explaining this objective moral order that is, in some sense, intuitive to all people throughout history is even more difficult to explain for those who reject God. And so today we're going to be spending a few moments reflecting upon this objective moral order. That is to say, the law of God. And we are going to specifically be looking at how the law of God functions as a mirror. I mentioned this two weeks ago, I believe. That's one of, that's one of the functions of God's law. It, it's a mirror. You may have heard people refer to various uses of the law. The first use, the second use, the third use. Well, this is what has traditionally been called the first use of the law. The law that exposes our sin and our misery. One of the great insights of the Reformation was this distinction between the law and the gospel as different forms of speech. And they also recognized that the law, as it comes as the commands of Scripture, function differently based on your relationship to Christ. So here we are considering that first use of the law, the law as a mirror. Now, I can't take credit for this, this imagery. This comes from John Calvin himself. And listen to how he speaks about the law. He says this, The law is like a, a mirror. In it we can contemplate our weakness, then the iniquity arising from this, and finally the curse coming from both. Just as a mirror shows us the spots on our face. When we gaze into the mirror of God's law, we see perfection, and that perfection exposes our imperfection exposes how far we fall short of God's standard. You imagine people who lived in ancient civilizations who didn't have mirrors and many avenues to see a reflection of themselves. On the one hand, it probably would have been difficult for them to come to a, a view of themselves that would accord with reality. And two, there probably were many people who thought they were more handsome and beautiful than they actually were. <laughs> So mirrors help us, have, give us a glimpse into reality and humble us at times. Well, where in Romans 3 do we see this idea that the law exposes us, that it functions as, as a mirror? Yes. In fact, that I believe is, uh, uh, well, if you had it open in, in, a, in a booklet, 
that's one of the main proof texts that the Catechism itself even gives. So, since, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, the law reveals our law. It functions as a mirror. And this, in fact, this is the, the verse that Calvin himself looks to, to defend his statement that he previously gave. Well, this also leads to another question. What about those people who've never heard of Scripture? They've never read the Bible. How do they come to a knowledge of their sin, or don't they? Sean? Yes, thank you. That's exactly right. In fact, Paul himself addresses this very issue. So Romans 1, 1 through 3.20 is all about guilt and our sin and our condemnation before God and how we all are held accountable to God. Uh, and, and, and so he begins with the Jews. The Jews are accountable to God and they're, they're guilty before God's standard. And they've been given God's revelation in the Mosaic Law. They know what was required, but yet they transgressed that requirement. But then Paul addresses the issue of the Gentiles, the Greeks. What about those who who haven't received the Mosaic Law, who haven't been given a written form of God's moral revelation? Are they still accountable before God? And so this is what Paul says in response to that question, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Paul here is saying what what Sean alluded to earlier, that the law has been written upon our hearts by virtue of creation, general revelation. But notice how Paul also speaks about the nature of the conscience. One of the avenues by which God's law testifies to us is through our conscience. Our catechism in question answer 61 speaks about our conscience accusing us. It's accusing us because we have indeed broken God's law. Now, of course, as as fallen sinful creatures, our consciences are more or less seared to some degree or another, but there is still that remnant of God's law speaking, testifying to us through the use of the conscience. And this is precisely why the gospel can be so hard for us as human beings to grasp. We are programmed for the law. Basic to our nature is this idea of do this and you will live, don't do this and you will be cursed. That's what we know intuitively. When we go into culture and our society, our society is premised on law. Capitalism, the American dream, is all about enjoying, work hard, enjoy the fruits of your labor. Do this and live. But the gospel is counterintuitive, it's countercultural, it goes against the very grain of our nature in that it says it is finished. It says live 
and then do this. And this is one of the reasons why uh, the church is so important. The church is really the only place where you will find and hear this countercultural, counter um, nature, counterintuitive message. I remember one theologian saying, you know, if the, the church fails to feed the poor, some, someone else, some other institution, society will meet that need. But if the church fails to preach the gospel, no one else is going to fill that need. It's also important, I think, for us to realize that the law is natural. That's what Paul says in Romans 2. The Jews know the law through the Mosaic law, but the Greeks and the Gentiles also know the law. Meaning the law accords with who we are as human beings living in this natural world. It is true according to the nature of things. It makes sense in light of creation in general. I remember uh, one contemporary author and theologian has, has talked about um, the, the mass exodus of young people leaving the church. And he opines that one of the reasons is, is, is not that young people don't know the church's ethic, but rather they think the church's ethic is very arbitrary. They struggle with the why behind the law of God and the church's ethic. Think of homosexuality. They don't know that, they know the church's position on that, but how can God condemn something that feels natural to someone? How can God condemn the feelings of someone and those feelings seem genuine? And so on and so forth. And so when we realize that the law is actually natural, that it accords with the nature of things, that it's true, just like gravity as a physical law is just true according to the nature of things, so too when we start to look at the moral law of God, we see that these things are very true according to who we are as human beings living in this creation. And thus it has much explanatory power to explain the why behind our ethic, the why behind God's law. The law, the law is a mirror. It's a mirror both for those in the covenant community and for those outside the covenant community, specifically through our, our conscience. Well, what does God's law, according to catechism, what does God's law require of us? Where does a catechism go to answer that, that question? And what is Jesus doing in Matthew 22? Yes. Jesus very concisely summarizes, as he says, all the law and the prophets, and specifically the Ten Commandments. In our day and age, we hear a lot of this love for God, love for neighbor. In fact, we can sometimes hear that more than God's references to God's law. God's law seems strict, but God, love for God, love for neighbor seems a lot easier to stomach. And sometimes when we think about love for God, love for neighbor, it can seem abstract. Like, what does that really mean, loving God? Is it just a feeling? Is it a deed? Is it an action? Well, knowing that Jesus is summarizing the Ten Commandments is helpful for us because the Ten Commandments then gives us some specificity to what may seem somewhat abstract. So if we consider the Ten Commandments uh, for, for a moment, you know, the first four commands deal with our love for God. And so think for, uh, about the first commandment which says, no, we shall have no other gods before, before God. It's condemning all idolatry. Thus, think just about your own life. Think about what you speak a lot about. Think about how you spend your time. Think about what gets you emotional, what gets you angry, 
what gets you joyful, what gets you excited, what gets you up in the morning. Think about how you spend your money. Think about how you spend your time. Now, as you go through all these different avenues of your life, can you honestly say that God is consistently number one in your affections, in your thoughts, in your actions? Second commandment has to to do with, with worship, that we are to worship God according to his word and his prerogative. Now, it's, again, very natural to us as fallen human beings to want to worship God according to our preference, to what feels good to us, to what meets our needs. And only secondarily do we really consider what God has actually required of us in his word. Third commandment, not taking the uh, Lord's name in vain. Of course, we know that means we can't explicitly use the Lord's name, but what about speaking irreverently of his works of providence? Grumbling, complaining. Definitely gets all of us. Fourth commandment, the Sabbath. Do we sanctify, set apart God's day as holy? Do we treasure this moment, the means of grace, the people of God? Do we treat our brothers and sisters as if we truly have an everlasting bond with them that supersedes even our natural relationship with our family. This love for God. That in a concrete way is what it means to love God. What about love for neighbor? Fifth commandment, honor your authority figures. Catechism says that that this means that we are to bear patiently, especially with those who fail us, since it is God's will to govern us by their hand. So how do you do when authority figures in your life fail you? We're called to honor them, respect them, pray for them. Sixth commandment calls us to not murder. Not only does this condemn anger and frustration, how many times do we just say, I'm frustrated, I'm upset. But this also calls us to love our neighbor above ourselves, as Paul says in Philippians 2. Seventh commandment, don't be lustful. Again, or don't don't commit adultery, which condemns lust. But it also calls us to love, respect, and honor our neighbor. Eighth commandment, don't steal. I love how Paul applies this commandment in Ephesians 4. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him, let him labor so that he may be able to help those in need. So that commandment not only condemns stealing, but it, it also promotes hard work so that we might not just accrue wealth for ourselves, but so that we accrue wealth so that we can be generous. Ninth commandment, uh, uh, bear false witness. Uh, we are not to be backbiters or slanders or twist people's words. How easy it is for us to twist people's words. Imagine if you're in a disagreement with someone, conflict. Our natural inclination is to, to take something they've said and twist it to fit our side of the story, our interpretation of the events, or to impute motives to people. That's the ninth commandment. Tenth commandment, then fitting summary. It condemns all wrong desires, which really you could just start there and be done because that is how we break every commandment. And so how do you measure up in light of the mirror of God's law? I think we all would say that we stand condemned, guilty, sinful. And this is the point. It's uncomfortable for us to to really be exposed by God's law. It's humbling. We don't like it. And when people don't have a clear distinction between the uses of God's law, the temptation is to really dumb down God's law. I'm not doing that bad. 
And part of the reason is because a, a lot of people think that, and rightly believe that, obedience is required in the Christian life, but then they also know that, well, if I'm disobedient, that might mean I'm not a Christian. And so then I really want, I don't want to be exposed to, to, uh, too dramatically in light of God's law, because I want, I want to at least have some assurance that I'm doing okay, that I'm still a child of God. But we are called, first and foremost, to look at the law of God and all that it is and be completely exposed, stripped, naked, condemned, crushed, and killed. That's the point. Well, how does question answer five describe our condition, our reflection in light of the mirror of God's law? How does question and answer five describe our, um, our reflection in God's law or the state of, of our human heart? We're always trying to run away from it. We, we reject it. Yeah. Yeah. Things to shape uh, God's law into our own image. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. clean slate and you choose, it's that you're kind of born into, like, being born necessitates being born a rebel of God's law. Yes, thank you. It's very, yeah, very pervasive. It's rebellion. Notice the, the, the words of the catechism itself. A natural inclination to hate God and neighbor. That's strong language. So let me ask you, is this too strong of language? I'm sure we all can think of people who, who have different, a different faith than us, who aren't Christians, but really they do a lot of kind, sacrificial, benevolent things for their neighbor. Can, can we honestly say that this is true of them? True of us before we were saved. Is this too strong of language? Yeah, thank you. We have to remember um, who we're being compared to, the law, perfection. And often our motives are a little twisted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm bringing cookies, I got my name in the bulletin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I brought those cookies, right? I mean, you still have, there's motive for pride or, or all kinds of things that don't show up that clearly in the good deed, but yeah. not altruistic. 
Okay. I feel like it's almost borderline generous. Right. Like I, I feel like, on the, on the contrary of it being harsh, I think using the word inclined is borderline generous. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Instead of instead of uh, like maybe bound, or you know, I, I mean, obviously we could do uh, good things for our neighbor in a fallen state, sort of, right? To a degree. Mm -hmm. um, but I think even saying I'm inclined by nature mm -hmm. is almost too generous. Yes. If we're if we are walking in good works prepared before us, in a sense as Christians, mm -hmm. um, out, out of our uh, understanding of the gospel, right? Then uh, would that be as true of unbelievers as well? That out of even in their ignorance, they're still walking in good works that were prepared before, like that the Lord prepared for them, hmm. in some common grace, or is that not true of them? Yeah, yeah, good question. So Ephesians 2.10 is specifically speaking to believers. Right. Um, but we would also say that everything falls under God's decree, meaning he foreordains whatever comes to pass. So yes, the, the relative good that unbelievers can do is still under God's sovereign decree and control. So in some sense, yes, um, anything that comes to pass has been prepared beforehand by God. So. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a great distinction. Well, if you look at Romans 3 again, Romans 3 verses 9 through 12, listen to what Paul, again, listen again to what Paul says as he's quoting, um, quoting from the Old Testament. What then, are, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And scriptures replete with similar statements about how the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful, corrupt beyond all measure. So it's important to make the distinction when we talk about this idea of total depravity, that what we mean is that all of us has been, is fallen is depraved, meaning body and soul. Not one part of us has, has, has escaped the remnants of the fall. However, we also have to distinguish that we're not utterly depraved, meaning because of God's common grace, even those who have tasted nothing of the regenerate, regeneration of the Spirit still can do some outward good. But it's not ultimate good. Because, as Ellen talked about, when we look at our motives, the motives of someone who has not been regenerated by the Spirit of God is never for the glory of God. It's always for some other end, meaning their esteem, their glory, their ego, and so forth. So it might be outwardly good, but it's not ultimately good because for it to be ultimately good, its telos, its purpose, its end needs to be aimed at least partly on God and his glory and his esteem. Well, I'd like to, as we begin to wrap up, I'd like to um, remind you of one other verse by Paul, which really speaks to a similar concept. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul, Paul says this. He says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So here Paul compares the law to a, a pedagogue, 
a tutor. In the ancient world, people would have been very familiar with this. Students would ordinarily have a tutor accompany them to the class every day, making sure that they have their assignments written down, that they have everything done and completed, and that they're being studious, responsible pupils. And they had the reputation of being harsh, because if the student was out of line, they would, they would have their, their wrists slapped. If they had their times tables mixed up, they would be punished. And so Paul compares the law to a tutor, a harsh <coughs> school teacher that prepares us, that drives us to Christ. So really, in one sense, this is getting at the same thing that Paul's saying in Romans chapter 3, but just using a different, a different image. And this teaches us something very important. It teaches us that, that as I said before, we are to, to look into the law. We are to be taught of our sin and misery through the law. We are to be crushed by the law. But at the end of the day, the law is not what makes our religion distinct. Many other world religions have similar um, laws, similar ethics as we do. The golden rule is, is found in many different religions. Again, this is evidence that the law is written upon our hearts. So we are to look at the law. We are to be exposed by the law, crushed by the law. But notice what Paul says. It's for the purpose of being driven to Christ. And that's so important. And we can't lose sight of that step, that we are meant to be exposed and convinced and taught of our sin and misery so that we would be prepared to receive Christ. Christ both as the assurance of our salvation, this countercultural, counterintuitive message, but also so that we would be prepared to actually obey that same law out of gratitude. So the logic is always being exposed, crushed by the law, led to Christ both for assurance and motivation to obey. So today, um, our catechism um, was about the first use of the law. So the law is a mere law uh, that exposes us of our sin and misery. And next week we'll look at a Lord's Day, a Lord's Day 3, which speaks about the origin of our depravity. How did sin come about? When did it come about? So any questions? Yes? Is there going to be... Three. Are we going to cover the three? Are we going to cover those? And is one of them um, an eschatology in the law? You know, if the law is a mirror showing yeah. us where we've been in our sin, but also in the law, there is looking forward to the perfection mm. that we're going to. Like even this, you know, Sabbath being a reflection of the eternal rest rather than yeah. the things like that. Is is that ever something that's addressed really in the so to your first question, we will begin the other use of the law. So there's, I guess in our um, theology, there's been three, there's three main uses of the law. So the first use of the law is the law is a mirror. The third use of the law is the law as a lamp or as a means of gratitude, which will be the whole third section of our catechism, whereby we unpack the Ten Commandments as a guide to Christian living. And the second use of the law comes up sporadically in, in various question and answers. And the second use of the law is the civil use of the law. So the law which restrains sin at a societal level. In terms of the, the, your second question about the, es, the sort of eschatological view of the law, in, in some sense, it, um, when Paul, like even in Romans 3, Paul says the law speaks to those who are under the law. So he uses language of being under the law, being brought out from the law, and now you're under the law of Christ. Well, this is, kind of touches upon that because when we are in Christ, we are released from the law. 
not just the Mosaic law, but, but in, in one sense, this first use of the law, whereby it threatens and curses us. And we are, have a foot in the new creation. And insofar as we have a foot in the new creation, we obey the law of Christ. So that terminology is used on a number of occasions. And the law of Christ then is similar. So it's still the moral law of God, but it's refracted through Christ to fit us as new covenant Christians. So there's some, some unique aspects to it to fit our time in redemptive history as those who have a foot in the new creation. So we now love not just um, love your neighbor as yourself, but we love as Christ has loved us. We specifically have the pattern of Christ to, to, imitate, uh, to imitate. And so it's substantially the same as the moral law and the Ten Commandments, but there are unique differences as is refracted through Christ for us in this period of redemptive history. Anything else? Well, let us uh, go before our Lord.